Did you tell me about Os Guinness's book, The Gravedigger Files? Was that you? No. No, I love Os Guinness, but is that better? Um, yeah, that's great. Yeah, right at the top there. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's this book. I think I can't remember who told me to get this book. It might have been even um Jeff Schaefer. But it's the Gravedigger Files and it's papers on the subversion of the modern church. And I figure it's like there's only a few people who would have told me to get that book, and I thought it was you. I do know though that you told me to get this book from Donald Scott from Office to Profession, the New England Ministry, seventeen fifty oh, yeah. to eighteen fifty. But I can't remember why you told me to get this book. Cause that's the that tracks the change from the church as a public institution with public offices that meant something. Oh yeah. Yeah. To we- the the change to the church as a private institution. So it switches the it's the way the even pastors uh, the degree a past the the it changes to a, the pastors needing a professional degree from a university at that time. That's where it tracks. That's all the stuff we talked about with the the effect of the abolitionist movement moving outside the church, the establishment of um, parachurch organizations um, often during that time. So it's a really crazy time period um, because the offices of the offices are kind of going away um, a public, the idea of public held offices established by God, it's going away everywhere. It's going away in out of the church everywhere. The whole shift of the way that people think about how, what it means to exist in, to exist in public shifts and changes during that hundred years. But it, it starts in the church. The church is the one that just that, that does it first. And, and, Man, I have so much to read. Anyway, that came in, and I was like, oh, this is a bigger book than I thought. You know it's a large book that I didn't know? Um, uh, Paul Paul Thompson. What is his name? Paul. Paul Johnson. Paul Johnson's book on the modern era from basically the 20s to the 90s. That book is massive. Yeah, it's like. 1400 pages or something i got the audio book and so i've been going through that thinking like okay that's so bad i have noticed that i'll go to bed with that book on and i'll wake up and that book is still going and it's like oh chapter four (laughs) (laughs) yeah that that book is that book's mind-blowing because we don't we stopped um we during that era we stopped teaching history right so Mm. it's so he's tracking the history, but it's none of that history is taught anymore. I mean, I didn't even get like, you know, a, a history of the the 20s and 30s um, until I was much older and out of school. So you because those those are the areas that are contested. We want to be we. We teach history now trying to explain that every other era is just like our era, that this is this is all just normal. Um, And uh, but it was a lot different in other eras. Um, And those transition eras, World War One, you know, just I just almost I learned almost nothing about World War One until I went back and started studying it in order to understand the poetry of the time. That's what finally 
finally caused me to go read the history was the poetry shifts so dramatically and so suddenly away from the Victorian era into the that World War One era poetry. It's still men, right? It's still masculine. Men are still the ones writing the poetry, but all of a sudden it just it's cynical and it's it's about how terrible the world is and life is and how much we don't trust our authorities anymore and how our authorities so you know misuse so terribly it's like all of a sudden you get this shift and this change from the bat the charge of the light brigade in the victorian era which is about the glory of men charging into battle together even if they lose there's something glorious about the the uniting of men into a battle battle force to the individual cynicism of the soldiers of World War One. It's so dramatic that that's what finally caused me to go read the history of World War One. You know, was, it, what happened to the soul of men during this time? For whatever reason, no one. No one talks about World War One or World War Two, except to point out the fact that Hitler was bad. He did some horrible things right. to the Jews. Um you know, even actually, it's funny. I, I watch the History Channel on World War One, and they tell you all the stuff that goes on, and they tell you about these great moments in World War One where you got Patton basically coming in with the tanks, you know, for the first time, and um, uh, having basically his own platoon with that. And it just so you, there's these moments, but then you don't because you're reading your moment in time back into this. You just think, okay, yeah, that's the first time they had tanks, but you don't think. You know, these guys were just on horses with sabers um, and <laughs> it might be pretty radical now to see a bunch of men die with machine guns that we've never seen before, you know, or, right. or gas. You, you just don't think of what it has on the psyche of a man afterward. You don't think about those things. It doesn't have any effect into your world, into your worldview. You don't apply any kind of way. You don't say, oh, we have a fallout of generational uh fragmentation and actually severing from fatherhood you don't you don't even apply any of that you know why how why did we lose why did we stop teaching history well i mean there's a couple of reasons one i think is just because the uh, people that don't know their history are easier to manipulate mm -hmm. and i mean i think that's the that's the cynical side of me that says you, you you can't become the tyrant of a people that know their own story, right? A people that know their own story are protected from tyranny in a, um, and so I think the there's a a tyrant nature, a nature to tyrants that want us to not know history, but but I think also that there is there is a dislodgement um, that happened uh, that of of the. Of humanity, you know, so because so one of the things about Gnosticism is that history is a an enemy, right? And then we need to be saved from history, out of history, and that um, we need to so be saved out of it and from it. Yeah, yeah. So the so the telling of history is always going to be negative in a Gnostic context, right? There's not glory of ages past is possible in a Gnostic context. We're always in the bad age, the, 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 um, so you might get like in ancient Greece, you might get a golden age, a thousand years previous, and then a silver age and then a bronze age. 
so you know you, you, when you hear about the Bronze Age, there's that's an old old term. People, t- um, it ended up being conflated together with the you know the like oh they have bronze during this age, but the, there's actually the Bronze Age in terms of ancient historians was there's the Golden Age in the past when we were still close to our own humanity and to the gods and um, sometimes humans weren't here yet in the golden age but and then the silver age and then the bronze age and then the iron age which was always the age that mankind was in right the the messed up age the age of war the age uh, and you would be sort of rescued out of the cycles of history and you see this in in hinduism you know you see it in in uh buddhism you see it and, and then, you know, the, the the cynicism of the modern world was the same sort of thing. You've got these cycles of history and you've got to be rescued out of them. And you're rescued out of them in different ways in different time periods. But if that's the way history is, then it's not you're not going to tell history unless you have an agenda that you're trying to push. And so the, that agenda driven history sort of became the norm in the 60s, 70s. In the academically in the in the academy, um, maybe even a little bit before that in the academy, until it became now the norm popular in popular histories, right? Like when I was young, you, you would I wanted to be a history writer, right? So I uh, that was my first um, af- after you know you want to be somebody that swims with dolphins for a living when you're young and then you not me. then you, you know <laughs> i didn't have that. that was that was before i knew about shark week yeah you know, <laughs> <laughs> now now the ocean makes me nervous there's gators in the ocean too on if you're out in the atlantic why no. do you even get in the water there's bull sharks and there's anyway i would rather walk with my with the lions that live in the woods outside my house yeah yeah <laughs> Because at least you know we're out, I can run. Well, yeah, and we they, can build, on, exactly. We can build stuff away from them too. Like <laughs> right, right. But if I'm swimming, there's no way I'm out swimming a shark or. And might well anyway. be in space. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which I think the new Sharknado is sharks in space. So. <laughs> yeah. Um. But I think. But so you've got this sort of shift in the way that history is done because of the cynicism that history that there isn't. You know, history was called moral philosophy before. Mm. Like when you're stu- you, when you didn't go study the science of history. You went and studied moral philosophy because the the you're trying to find the patterns of the covenant. You, 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 how when did God decide? No, no more. I'm going to destroy these people. How do you not do the things that led to that? Right? Like mor- moral philosophy is as the trying to discover the patterns of. The covenant as well as just how to live wisely in the world God made. But that makes sense, too, because then that's how that's why it makes sense that common law isn't around anymore, because if you teach history differently or you don't teach it at all or it's a drag, then common law, which is basically what covenantally what's hand down from generation to generation about what God has done and uh, and the understanding that we've learned from our our ancestors before us. Um, our fathers before us is lost. And so <laughs> of yeah. course you got to lose common law. If you lose history. Yeah. You lose common law. You, you know, things are just sort of dissolved by 
ahistorical and ahistorical understanding. So common the law is one of them. Common law theory requires that it's a historical legality yeah, that right. is chained. There's a legal way yeah. uh, to move the law forward towards a greater understanding of righteousness. And there's a legal there's an understanding that says we're not going to get it all right. Right. The human condition um, because of sin is such that we that that our law codes are not going to be perfect. And that's not actually we're we're pushing towards making them more and more righteous, more and more just. But we don't expect to look at them and say, we nailed it. Now it's perfect. Right. That's why the Constitution has the ability to make amendments. Because we know that in the common law tradition, the understanding is we're moving towards a greater justice, a greater righteousness, right? Yeah. It's a historical process. Yeah, unless you lose history, then your movement yeah, is you lose history. <laughs> yeah, you, you, it's gonna move. It's either moving forward or backwards, right? Yeah, and and I think what's one of the things that I find fascinating. So, because it, it dissolves law but it's also it dissolves authority right to lose history you actually lose authority and it's hard to tell which came first is authority what dissolved first and so history went away or did history get dissolved and so authority went away but there's no understanding of of the of hierarchy in the world anymore that's what you mean by authority. A good thing. That's what you mean by yeah. authority. Is like people don't legitimate authority, right? Like, There's only power. L- legitimate. So uh, as this goes back to our, uh, and this might be going too far back. I don't want to go too far back, but we were talking about um, the the Enlightenment. Is that go back to the Enlightenment when we start talking about authorities? Like, what are legitimate authorities? What are legitimate offices? What kind of um, power do those offices have? Um, is that what yeah. you're talking about? You're talking about authority that right. Yeah. Yeah. So my, and, um, here's my version of the history of offices okay. <laughs> in the world. Right. So you got, you go to the ancient world, you read Aristotle, you read Plato. Um, they believe that there are, that the economic realities of life are direct correlations to the ontological realities of the great chain of being. And they'll just, they just believe it. They teach it. They've, it's, uh, it's assumed that underneath it all, that there's this great chain of being or inside. And this is where for Aristotle, there's the great, the, it's inside each of us is an ontological reality. And for Plato, there's an ontological reality, um, in, you know, the, the mind of the universe or some, you know, the mind of God for, for Augustine or there's, there's, there's ontological realities that each of us partake in. And the, there, the, the economic realities are in direct correlation to that ontological reality. And you've got that in Hinduism, you know, with, with the great chain of being, you've got it in, um, in Aristotle, you've got it in, Plato, you've got it in the Stoics, uh, um, and the the Gnostics were a sect of Christians, or uh, they were they were trying to wed Christian theology to the great chain of being. Right? That that's the the uh, central part of the Gnostic heretics. Right? There were the Gnostic secret um, mystery religions and all sorts of things, but the heretics were the ones 
the Gnostics heretics were the ones trying to wed that ontological understanding with a Christian worldview. And you're a bunch of pagans coming out of that ontological understanding. And so they got some traction early in early in the church, but then certain theologians recognize it and put an end to it. And you get the creator creature divide. What that tells us is that the economic realities are, are correlated with ontological realities. You say are not, so if somebody has, you said are not coordinated with, cause you broke up co- cor- correlated, correlated. It's not a correlation, right? So if somebody has more money than you, then yeah. it doesn't mean they're more human than you, right? Or if somebody is a citizen of Rome, it doesn't mean they're more human than a, than a slave in Rome, right? That their humanity is actually ontologically, identical but their economic realities are different and so this does funny things to society right so you have um you have places where a slave um is a really good slave and his uh and his master realizes it says i don't get it what's going on with this slave the slave says well let me tell you about jesus um the slave, the slave master gets converted, starts going to church. The slave is a good Christian, ends up an elder in the church, and his master is his congregant. And so you've got on Sunday morning, the you've got the slave over the master, and then the other six days a week, the master over the slave. And it has this way of dissolving the institution of slavery until it no longer makes any sense. It's made illegal for for you know, 200 years, it's, it's 14, well, almost 1400 years. It's illegal in the, in the West because it doesn't make any on, there's no ontology to support slavery. Can I, can I jump in right here? Cause I've heard you say this yeah, before. Yeah. I think we've, we've talked about this before and I just want to observe something that I haven't observed before, which is acting upon the ontological realities of people creates an environment where economic realities that are unjust fall apart. We yeah, should they, not they, forget that. That's a massive right. wow, that's really good. Jason, that's really so, good. So yeah, the injustice is sort of just dissolved by the the realization that um we it doesn't the injustice is to because there are justifications for injustice in paganism, in that those sorts of right. different views of the world, right? And they're dissolved as those views of the world change and go away. Um, so, you know, it, to this, you know, in my church, I am not anywhere near one of the wealthiest in my church, but I'm an elder. And so on Sunday morning, you know, there's a, an authority that as an elder that I have and am called upon to wield for the benefit of uh of the church um that if if it was a wednesday afternoon and we were all going car shopping i would not have right because <laughs> there are people that have plenty of money they you know they've got it they've got a position in society um in they have an economic position in society much higher than mine but then on sunday morning you know i have an eldership that 
is a real hierarchical authority that God has established over people that would be over me in other areas. And there's no discomfort in that. When there's not injustice, there's no discomfort in that in in the a Christian view of the world because the ontological realities are not wrapped up or affected by the economic reality. But what happens is a lot of institutions that are based upon that assumption, even if they're the good institutions, when you get to the Enlightenment and they start saying, well, wait, there's not an economic that the economic realities are matching up with the ontological realities, we should fix that, right? Be, um, that's when you start getting the the disillusion of offices, offices in the world. So offices in the world are you know authoritative positions that one person holds hierarchically over and above other people, where you've got heads and subjects of covenants, and but. Those are not ontologically founded. Those are economically founded by God. Uh, and um, when we start returning to an older ontology in the in the Enlightenment, it, instead of it going into the mode of the ancient world, right? The neoclassical folks say, "Hey, we're returning to the ancient world." But what they don't realize is the ancient world is gone. There's no going back. Mm. But the ancient worlds, the hierarchies were founded upon ontological assumptions. I can own slaves because I'm more human than them. Right. Mm. I, mm. So you, you begin shift trying to shift back to that understanding of analogy. But now, instead of being able to say I'm more human than them, I should I should have authority. They say, I'm not more human than them. Therefore, there should be no authorities. There should be no <laughs> offices. There are no mental authorities that are legitimate. So every authority comes under the microscope and is dissolved by Gnosticism so that all you have in the end of the day then is power and the, the powerful and the powerless. Is that is that because go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish it. Finish it. Well, just be, because there's no longer God established economic uh, economic offices that have no bearing on the ontological equality, right? That that the possibility of that goes away, and so the possibility of real authority goes away. But in ter- real authority, in the sense of real uh, official office held hierarchical authority that that leaves the uh, the possibilities within our imagination because of the shift of things and so is this is it fair to say that everything goes egalitarian because everything Every, yeah and so exactly yeah because there's no if there's no office so everything um boy this is really interesting because it really make, makes a very messed up world it really makes an absolute messed up world because you have a group of people, let's just use police officers and just kind of maybe work through this like this. You got police officers out there who have a real office, who have a real authority, and then some take that office and that authority and overextend themselves to make them outside of the economic realities and give themselves an ontological reality over people. And then you got people on the other end who look at the office and completely disrespect it <laughs> because they don't think that it should right. exist anyway. 
Yeah. And the difference in, in within the imagination of most people, the difference between the two is one has the has the uh, has the gun and one doesn't. That's the only thing that separates. them. that's exactly that, it. That's I've heard people that say that all the time. Yeah. Why do you obey a police officer? Because he has a gun that has never settled settled well with me. It has yeah. never settled well with me. Right now, there are situations where you say, well, he's got a gun, so I'm going to listen to him. But that is not that should not ever be a police officer. Right. But why does he carry a gun? I mean, he carries a gun because of the office that he holds and what he's allowed to. He actually has a particular office where he can take a person's life. Right. He has the office of the sword. Right. That's where he's operating within. Yeah. So there were three there in, in the Middle Ages. There were three people allowed to work on Sundays. Right. There were the police officer, the pastor and the doctor Mm. because they were the ministers of justice, ministers of the gospel and ministers of health. Mm. Right. So they were allowed to work. They they weren't breaking the Sabbath to work on Sunday. Now, whatever you think about blue laws and the way Sabbath laws ought to function within a society, there is a lot of wisdom in it um, to, to say, well, but they recognized that you were working directly as the hands and feet of God. And God doesn't sleep. God right. doesn't rest. Right. And so that was that was their argument is those are the so you, the judge, he, he takes Sunday off. Right. He doesn't he's not required uh, on a Sunday. Um, the, the president, he can take the Sunday off. You know, he's not required on a Sunday. You don't have you don't need lawmakers on a Sunday, but you need the police. You need the doctors and you need the, the ministers. Yeah. So. And there's, you know, there's, I want to get into, I, I leave it to me to always think about baptism, but I was thinking about the fact that economic realities and the um, ontological realities are, are blurring of those offices, blurs covenant. Um, it also blurs how we view our family and our children as well. But I don't want to get into that because we'll all, that's, leave it to me. We'll be there forever talking about that because I think it's so important. But I do want to get into. No, it is important, though, because if father and mother are offices. Oh, you better say that. Go ahead. Go ahead now. It's a different thing. So the office of father and the office of mother are authoritative offices in God's economy. Right. And so my my wife is really great about this because she's she'll be talking to our kids and she's like well look you're my little sister in christ and i'm your mom those are both true and so um god gave me authority to be your mom and i'm your big sister in christ like we and so my kids oh you know what uh, my my uh daughter the other day was saying you know mom i didn't realize how important that was until i got older and went in older over to other people's houses. And she's like, we're allowed to do things that would be considered talking back in a lot of my friends homes because we, but we've always been raised to know your authority comes from God. And so we don't question the authority that God has given you. But we also know your equal, and so we can talk to you, right? Like my my daughter is like, we, I have friends whose parents fall off on either, or whose family right. culture, I guess, fall over on each side. Like my 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 kids are terrified of 
my wife's authority, right? In a good right, way. Right, right. And at the same time, they talk to my wife. Um, they, they, they come home and they're like, hey, I, I remember my daughter coming home once. She was uh, 15, maybe 16. Said, Dad, why, uh, why am I not allowed to date? It doesn't make any sense to me. And so we had a, a multiple day discussion back and forth. She'd come up. What about this? What about that? We got to the end and she said, thank you. She said, I, I can't just go to my friends and say, because my parents say so. I think she was 15. She's like, I'm 15 years old and I'll be motion. And now I can do it right now. I can answer all their questions. Right. So she wants to have her own convictions. Um, and, but the way you get those is by testing boundaries and asking questions. And if, if the authority is ontologically centered, there's no, you can't have that conversation because I said, so is a fully legitimate answer, even to a 16 year old. But if the, if the, they're economic, because I said, so makes total sense if they're two, but not if they're 15, mm. right? At their at 15, they need to have those discussions. My I, my other daughter came home once, 13, and said, Dad, am I a feminist? <laughs> like, what? She's like, everybody's calling me a feminist. And now I'm I need to know well, I don't I don't know what that means. And so we got some books and we talked about it, and you know, and that was a multi-year discussion. Um, because she had she was being told by all a bunch of friends that you're too, you're too confident. You're too convinced. You have your own, you have your own convictions. That's a feminist thing. Right. And she's like, no, that's a Christian thing. Right. No, I, just because I've got my own, just because I'm 13, I'm getting my own convictions um, that are derived from my parents. They're, centered in my parents authority they're centered in god's authority right that that that's what you want is is so she was like i she had to go learn what feminism really is right that's when i learned the history of feminism right it's yeah. in conversation with my 13 13 14 year old daughter it's like well now i have to go learn i'm her dad it's my job to guide and direct her through these years so i gotta go get some books on did i freeze no no no, no. Okay. So I, I got to go get some books on feminism. I got to learn this. I got to know how to guide her through years where she's smart. She's bright. She's convicted. She's got a, she's spicy. She's got a mom who's in, incredibly convicted and smart. And, you know, and so, but she's being told, um, well, he, you know, this is this is that's what feminists are like, right? Well, it's on. I'm her dad. I gotta I gotta go learn that stuff because my authority isn't vested. But my authority is vested in me, but it's not centered in me, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. It's a real authority that God places on me, but I wear it because it's not ontologically based. It's economically based, right? Mm -hmm. And and the goal is that. They grow out uh, and uh, go off and establish their own households. They become fathers and mothers that are then vested with an authority that's not ontologically based, that's economically based, that's an office. Uh, and then they 
the, their children are blessed by their ability to wear comfortably a vested authority that's not that's not centered in us, but that is given as a gift to those under our care to us to wear. And we're really uncomfortable wearing authority because we're post enlightenment Gnostics. Were we supposed to be talking about this today? <laughs> this is not what we were supposed to be talking about, was it? I don't know. If, I never know what we're supposed to be talking about. You just no, say, don't even it, say it. Read, what should I read? What should I read for next time? And I give you something and then, then you ask questions. Yeah, it's true because I have a lot of questions. <laughs> and I show up on, and I show up unprepared, and then you, <laughs> and you preach to me the whole time. The, <laughs> wander us off into the woods, man. You know, speaking of wandering off into the woods, because we were okay. So we were supposed to talk about. Um, okay, I just got to talk about this real quick because this is really good. Uh, we were, I was on Whitlock uh, Monday yesterday, and we were talking about um, Elon Musk. And it's been interesting to watch him come in to speaking of offices. This is really interesting. Um, it's been interesting to watch him come into the game and completely make Twitter like it, it feels like Elon Musk is in a house full of roaches with social media. Let's just call all the social media <laughs> a house full of roaches. And he goes over to um, a dish on the table and he lifts it up. And all the roaches scatter. And that's what he did with right. Twitter. He just lifted up the plate. And all of a sudden, everything was underneath that plate was just a bunch of roaches. And, and right. it's been it was a, am- that was amazing to watch. It, and it's still happening. So it's not like it's over, but it's been interesting to me to watch people. I don't know, say cheer improperly because I'm kind of cheering in one sense. I like to see what's going to happen, but put their expectations and hopes inside of Elon Musk. Um, because we want Twitter, like we want, we, the people who are on the platform, we want it, you know? Right. <laughs> it's been amazing to watch us kind of like try and get Twitter. It's su- it's super interesting too, because I, he, he's not really a, a conservative in any traditional sense of the word, no, right? I mean, no. libertarian of some stripe but he's he's really that just means autonomous that's all that means yeah yeah well that and that's the that's exactly the point i was going to make is is he is in favor of autonomous man um over against communal man i see what you did there i see what you did there that's brilliant (laughs) that's freaking brilliant that's brilliant And, and i think it's revealed where most of the conservatives actually are. Okay, wait, now wait. you got to break that. You got to break that down along as well. But you got to break because down. What, what autonomous will, man? First, okay, all right. First, what was that? So in Whitlock's article, which was really good, he had a phrase or a, a word for like the all of the thing. The yeah, and what does it stand for? It's like Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Apple, Go- Amazon, Twitter, uh, uh, and no, Google, ne- Netflix, and Google. Netflix and Google, yeah, yeah. Um, where it, and and that was really, I thought that was a really smart observation that I hadn't thought of before. But they they work in concert together to push a particular agenda, and um, Elon came along and pushed against it. And I think what it, what it revealed was uh, because Elon is he's uh, he's an anarcho capitalist, anarcho capitalist, as far as I can tell, right? Yeah. Um, that. That uh, free reign capitalism 
is is a good in and of itself. Um, and uh, and then the Fang crew they're pushing a communalism um in which the community as a whole um and the community standards as a whole are the thing that we're protecting right that we're not protecting that that the good is the community but it's not particular the individuals in a community are sometimes need to be sacrificed and individuality needs to be sacrificed for the good of the community and we that's just what you do right so and and so you've got community standards that are enforced um for the good of the community but the community is almost something um abstract because not for the good of the people right in the community right um so when <laughs> when good. you've got when you've got an anarcho capitalist come along and threaten the communalism um, and all the conservatives say, hooray, free speech. That's what we want. Hooray, individualism. That's what we want. Um, auto- autonomy. That's what we're after. You think, except that that's not Christian conservatism anymore, right? Autonomous man is a is the ideal of the Enlightenment, mm. right? Communal man is the idea of the romantic response to the Enlightenment with this, without questioning any assumptions. It's only in Christ that you can hold together individuality and community because we are made in the image of a triune God who is individual, individual and community. Right? There's one God in three persons, not, neither of which is more fundamental than the other. Right. That that's the that's the goal of humanity to mature into a community in which the individualism and the community are are existing uh, in perfect fellowship or in, in perfect love. You know, but I'm sorry, I got to write that down. The goal of yeah. humanity is to mature into the Godhead. Into a perfect reflection of the Godhead, yeah. Yeah, thank you. The goal of human, the goal of humanity is, is to mature into the perfect reflection of the Godhead. Man, we don't use that enough. Yeah, and and I think what's interesting is watching the way. I mean, there, there's well, there's so much, there's so much about it that you know when we were talking yesterday, there was so much about the whole situation, but. The fact that conservatives are like, that's what we're after. If we were just given our autonomy back, <laughs> like, right? That's, that's not autonomous man is, um, the, that goal of autonomous man is what created World War One, what created, what started World War One, World War Two, what started the gulags, what started, um, Mao on his, his, uh, death death rampage you know it's that's that's the reason you know all the cambodian rock and rollers were put in prison and killed right there's this amazing being rock and roll scene of all this cambodian surf music and and all of it got stopped and because the the uh, communists came along and they said too much individuality 
right? Too mm. much individuality. We need we need to be um, that that individuality is a threat to the to the communalism that we're after, right? And so that fight between individuality and communalism is the, the what gave us the bloodiest century in the history of the world. So, Jason, right? is is that would you look at communalism and say that's kind of the national socialism? Right, communalism is national socialism. Are those two merge together when well, you talk about communalism. There's two. There's there's two versions of it. National socialism was a kind of communalism that was centered around the economy, and or the state. Uh, then, or well, the the communism and socialism were centered around the state's power. National socialism was centered around the economy's power. Ah, right, okay. so. So you had, but they're both, they're just, they're just, just, they just disagree about what is the center of human, of human society, uh-huh. right? So you've got the um, socialism and, uh, well, communism really is centered around the state's power, right? So um, the, they want to get rid of all ownership, get rid of all property, get rid of everything. And, and um, everybody is simultaneously the ruler of all right so the the so the authority to rule is at the center of communism right so you've got to get rid of the economy and because the authority needs to be shared and the and the economy is what threatens the um is what threatens the uh unity or it threatens i guess the um the equality of everyone, whereas in socialism and fascism, you have the the economy is considered the thing that holds us together. Right. So um, so the economy is controlled as a way of keeping us united communally in, as a as a community, uh, whereas the the thing you know, for Christianity, what holds us together communally? Um, well, it's not just a single thing. Right. It's layers and layers of things that that hold us together. Right. Our humanity as a whole internationally holds us all together as we are all equally human, a part of the human race. And then our nationality, our ethnicity, our our local is our different local um, things hold us together in different ways. Our government has a, an aspect in which it holds us together. But then our worship is also it holds us together um, and internationally it it same way you know you visit some other country and you get the international and you visit a church and you're immediately you know united with people uh in the faith and then you have then our local you know differences but from one to the next that uh, hold us together into smaller communities so uh there's not a single node for our identity for Christians, right? So our identity is, is even in terms of our relationship with God, we are, our, our identity is in our relationship to the triune God, to the father, to Jesus, to the spirit, to God, the one God, right? So all, there's, there's many nodes that hold together identity in Christianity. And that's not a threat, um, because uh, of the fundamental reality not being a single idea or 
anything. Which is why. You know, am I even making. No, 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 absolutely. Because I, all I'm thinking about is so in order for you to destroy that type of reality that Christianity actually holds these things together, not by one thing, you actually have to come through and unsettle multiple pieces of reality in order to right. be able to destroy it. Right. Yeah. You, there's an enormous amount that you have to d- dissolve. And we see right? it happening too. Yeah. It's happening all over the place. And, and you know, you see, you see that the disillusion really began shortly before world war one. Um, and then was, you know, a hundred and hundred, 120 year process of disillusion, uh, of dissolving of all of the different authority structures and and but it's not, and it's not just the left that, that is doing it right you see so right now i mean the stuff going on in florida uh the don't get don't say don't say gay bill yeah, and yeah. the that's the not act, yeah. cr- critical race theory like the governor putting together things to stop that is one more way of dissolving <laughs> dissolving society, right? Because that's not what the governors do. We, the you know, twenty years ago, I remember conservatives fighting for local control of their public schools, like it, like they used to have. Now, all of a sudden, we're cheering on the takeover of the government schools by a governor, right? Gov- that governor, he that that's asking for it, right? You the now all they have to do is change out governors, and they can do whatever they want in the public school because precedent has been set. And the, the the right cheered it on as a new precedent was set on how government school systems work and function. Now, even if even if you don't want government school systems, there's no way to not look at that and say, man, you're really going to load a gun when you're not sure who's going to be holding it in two years. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what we're willing to do, because we can. Only we think are. I mean. We, 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 that was the that was the redefinition of marriage in 1979 by the conservatives 78 79 uh, we're going to we're going to redefine it federally so that now there's a federal definition of marriage which gave uh the it gave the left the uh, the legal ability to change the definition of marriage cuz well, it gave the government it was established it gave the government an authority to even be able to say that it had control over men right like it says you yeah. you know you said something that I thought was really good when we were talking about Elon Musk we were talking about the fact that people are trying to use and I'll make this tie in trying to use the first amendment as a way to put pressure on Twitter and the the point that that you made was that um Listen, the First Amendment is designed to limit the federal government, not to put pressure on Twitter. And if you misuse that particular tool to try and put pressure on Twitter in this techocracy that we're currently in, what we're going to end up having at the end of the day is exactly what techocracy would want is to be looked at like a government official or a governor that has control. So they say, all right, if you're going to treat me like that. Then I get to do this. But they get this. And this is what I started to grasp was they get this, though, without any form of election. They get this through a backdoor because we want free speech and we want to misuse the government to be able to grasp as something that's not even ours. Twitter isn't ours. It's it's theirs. And if they want to do whatever they want to do within their category, you're not being limited at all. You can say whatever you want to. You might not stay on the platform, but you can say whatever you want to say, right? Twitter can't stop right. you from saying what you want to say. They just you won't be saying it there, right? <laughs> and 
And right. But but we what we've done is we've said, hey, well, we need our we, we want our First Amendment's rights. You can't stop us from doing that. The First Amendment is a limitation on the federal government's power. It's so we're saying to Twitter, we're we're willing to treat you like a governor. Right. If you will give us free speech. Right. That's that's basically the formula or it's an assumed technocracy. Right. We're assuming that they are our rulers by the way that we're treating them. Um, And that's just one more disillusion, one more dissolve dissolving uh, the First Amendment. Right. The First Amendment means less and less time um, because we misapply it. Well, and and I was you know, I was going back and for for whatever you want to people have their problems with the constitution and I, my the guys who wrote it you got our forefathers you got Madison and Adams who were very clear that you had to have a moral people if you're right, going to yeah. use this right like you had to and if you didn't, and Madison particularly said that if you didn't have a moral people, the only thing that was going to happen with this Constitution is it was going to be used to nip at each other until we completely devour each other. Because there's no yeah. moral foundation for it, which basically is saying you if you don't, you know, the 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 Constitution is only acknowledging the the authority that God has given to man. Right. Like, say, OK, hey, you are you are made in the image of God. You have these rights. The Constitution isn't making those rights. It's acknowledging the rights that has been given to it. It's, it's, it's acknowledging, um, certain offices, if you will. Um, and the, and its own office and what it's allowed to do and what it's not allowed to do. But somehow we've, this is, um, because of the autonomous man, We've disconnected the Constitution from the God of the Constitution. And that, the Constitution to me is in the same – it would be really interesting to see how David Fowler would think about this. But I think it's in the same line as uh, common law where it's another piece of the revealed um, uh, covenantal realities of man growing into what you say um, to reflect the Trinity – Perfectly. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it is definitely a part of the stream of common law because they're taking common law principles. Right. Yeah. And, and, and everything. But. Uh, but one of the central things that's about it was they actually it's a mix of the common law tradition and then some of the new enlightenment thinking about the law mm. where they said, what's the ideal? How can we wrap, wrap some of this new understanding of ideals into our constitution? But what's so interesting is they drew the ideal from the way the Presbyterian church governed itself. Right. And so, so it's a part of the common law tradition. Um, mostly, uh, mostly because in the older common law tradition, there was common law and then there was canon law, right? Church law, how the church governed itself. And the two of them were in conversation for a thousand years, right? Well, the last time they talked was the American Constitution. Wow. The, 
So the, the idea that, so, and that's where that from office to profession book is, is so revealing because canon law leaves, it walks itself out of the conversation on law, right? Whereas, you know, you're, you, you look at, say, the beginning of the information in Henry VIII, they, you, he's got people scouring canon law and common law to figure out what is his legal authority when it comes to uh, having a wife that doesn't produce an heir. Mm. Right. They're, they're, they're studying canon law, uh, common law, civil law, but they're also studying canon law to see is there wisdom in the way the church governs itself that is not authoritative in the situation but can inform how we interpret canon law and or inform how we interpret common law, right? So there's this, this legal conversation that starts with um, Rome, the book of Deuteronomy, and the um, the the seven nations of England. This this their legal system. You start this conversation, and then as the church grows and um, and matures, the church enters the conversation with its canon law, its self governing the the, the self governing law. Well, when the Presbyterian Church splits off, they organize according to the uh, the aspects of common law that have to do with uh, the systems involving um, their uh, their tribal law, right? The the old tribal law of the Angles, Saxons, Jutes, Picts, and Scots, right? You've got these tribes that all existed there, and there was this the the common law was laid over the top of the tribal law system. They've got all their clans. They've got all of their elders. They're all there. And in the Bible, there's a, there's a time when God's people organized according to a tribal system. And so they take that aspect um, and they say, well, what if we were to take this into the conversation, the other direction into canon law, the way that the law of the church self-governing law of the church uh, functions and the Presbyterian church is born out of this clan tribe uh, elder system that is there in the Bible because God organizes his people multiple ways throughout history. So it's there in the Bible and they say, this is the one that we think is actually oldest, right? So you read uh, a history like the history of the church by Cunningham. And he argues that Presbyterianism preceded uh, preceded the, uh, the the bishoprics and the archbishoprics. Presbyterianism was first, and so that and that's part of the way the argument works. Which is the because it's a historical legal development, right? So Presbyterianism is established in Scotland as a uh, as it comes into conversation with common law and previous canon law, and the, the a lot of the. So before the Reformation, the Eastern Church Fathers, the Greek Church Fathers, weren't available. But at, when the when Constantinople falls, the Eastern um, the the priests from the Eastern Orthodox churches come west. This whole another group of Eastern Orthodox uh, Church Fathers, Greek speaking Church Fathers, is also introduced into the conversation at the same time. And so the Presbyterians reorganize the Scottish National Church ar- uh, around 
clan tribe type of tribe of type of laws right and then after a couple of hundred years of that the wisdom of that gets into conversation with the common law tradition and the american constitution is born out of that presbyterian canon law and the common law of england which is currently functioning um in conversation with the uh with the Episcopalian law of the Church of England and Rome. So the American Constitution um, is the last time, though, really, that canon law and common law get into conversation and something new is born out of that conversation. So it is something new um, that that is born out of it, but it's this uh, it's within the historic way that constitutions are born. Now, that constitution sits on its own, um, and then it affects the legal systems all around the world because they see the, the benefit of it, right? They see the, the wisdom of it. But it doesn't affect it in the same sort of way. It affects it directly as a constitution, as if the constitution can be picked up out of the conversation and then dropped into a new setting. Uh-huh. Yeah, which is what we and, call and yeah. it. Yeah, and so you get all sorts of constitutions written and born, and and but, but in an enlighten in an enlightenment context, entering into the conversation in an enlightenment context is different because now it's looked at as one ideal amongst many ideals, and how do we coercively enforce that particular ideal? So rather than it growing out of the offices, the legal offices, the historic offices is that God established um, of father and governor and minister uh, and and you know judge uh, you know there's a lot of offices parent. that God establishes throughout history <laughs> parent father, yeah. Yeah, yeah but you've got all of uh, all of these offices established um, in that setting you don't have that necessarily in other places so you drop that constitution into a conversation, you know, in Africa or in India or in Australia or something. And it's, it's a different sort of thing. Um, because, so because we've, I'm sorry, I don't want to miss anything you were going to say. What were we going to say? It's a different sort of thing. Oh no, that, that this a just, it is, it's just a different sort of thing in that context. <sighs> this goes back to what we were talking about earlier is because we've absolutely severance severed history from so when you say it's the yeah. last time they met, they met something new birthed and whatever was birthed, praise God for it. But it's it's forgotten its history, its lineage, its yeah. foundation. Yeah. So that and people are trying to take that particular thing that was birthed and take it and remove it from the roots that it came from in order to try and make yeah. something new from. That's kind of scary. It is because it's supposed to just be a continuation of the conversation as we continue to move forward trying to figure out how to establish justice. But when you get to the Civil War, you you have a reframing of the Constitution into an Enlightenment context, right? Like, you got to remember, Karl Marx was writing for the New York Times during the Civil War, right? That, like, wait, so that's the, wait, the what? era of... What? Time yeah, Don't just say that and drive by it. That was a drive-by <laughs> shoot. the era of the Civil War. It's the era of the Civil War is is Karl Marx's writing. You've got all sorts of people trying to establish communes. Marx isn't the only communist. Um, he ends up being the one who establishes the most 
um, the most radical. It's not even the most radical, but it's the most, um, I would say, severed uh, version of communism where he tries to really sever it from historic roots uh, and blame it on the existence of economy. Right. So because he's trying to say we've got to be ontologically equal so there can be no economy. There can be no economic differences at all because we need ontological. We need to acknowledge the ontological equality. Right. But you've got all sorts of people trying to establish communes. He's not the only communist at the time. He's just he becomes a, a, a bugabear because he got it written down and in a way that well because Engels translated it all into a way that made sense because Marx himself was not necessarily the clearest of thinkers he was a it's always about the popularizers it's always about the popularizers who can popularize first of all I just sat here and listened to you how did you how do you (laughs) just (laughs) I'm I'm concerned that I broke you. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I just went on a journey through history and it's impressive. This is why you got to warn warn me what we're going to talk about. No, so this is exactly why I don't warn you what prepared. we're going to talk about. Because <laughs> So Jason, so then we were talking last week and you know, you said we got to talk about Walker Percy's cuz you you've been yeah. you already talking about autonomous man. Specifically yeah, specifically, chapter eighteen of Lost in the Cosmos was the one I was like, "That's what we got to talk about." And but, right? but so, okay, I don't even know where to start here. But you, so when you brought up autonomous man, you started hinting at this conversation that we were going to have in Walker yeah. Percy. So, why why is it that you said we need to talk about this? Because the question is. If once you cleanse out all, once you dissolve out all the offices and authorities and official, official organ, once you cleanse out the official organization of the world, what do you have left? And that's what Walker Percy says. I'll tell you what you have left. You have possession. Right? You have a, you have a world, you have a humanity that's open to the, de- demonic possession but he doesn't mean it in the individual way um that we mean it he's talking he's a doctor he's a a physician you know um who uh he goes through a a period of a, so he's he comes from Walker Percy's incredible mind he comes from multiple generations of fathers that committed suicide Right. So I think it's the four generations up to him, the father, the grandfather, the great grandfather and the great great grandfather, all of them commit suicide. Wow. He goes nuts. uh, So he becomes a doctor. He begins practicing and then he has a complete disconnect with reality over the fear that he will commit suicide. So. Not suicide. He doesn't have suicidal thoughts. He has fear of suicidal thoughts as a psychological break. Say that again. Process, Say that again. He, so he, his fear that he will become suicidal, a psychological break within him because yeah, yeah. he knows his history. He knows his family history. And um, while in the crazy ward, 
he basically he he's he has a a conversion experience. So he is from a long line of Louisiana Louisiana Roman Catholics who don't have conversion experiences, right? But he has one and he but he doesn't know where to plant himself because he through his conversion experience and his and his basically studies of the historic faith he comes to realize the church is sick Mm. and it's but it's not it's not a the protestants are sick or the roman catholic so he's a roman catholic but it's but he's not a roman catholic that says hey we should you should all become roman catholics because the roman catholics have escaped this sickness right he says the the south is sick the south he says is uh, has cleansed cleansed itself of a true Christian, a true understanding of Christian society, and has left man autonomously uh, uh, attempting to create himself in the midst of an ex-Christian society. Mm. So he said, "We we live in a Christ haunted world, but all that's left is the ghost of Christ, not." Christ himself. And so there's the, and, and it's this brilliant insight in which he says, the problem is that we have dissolved every, every, what he calls natural connection, every natural connection, connection, according to the nature of the way God made the world, we've dissolved nature. And all we have left is autonomous man floating, uh, disconnected from the world. Right. So he so you've got this. Uh, so e- each person is a uh, is a ghost in a Christ haunted world. And, and and he says, and what has happened is it's left us open to corporate possession by a new spirit. Right. And and it says it's the the spirit of the erotic violence, the spirit of erotic violence. So, and you think, okay, this is weird, right? It sounds kind of weird to to say that, except for as soon as you start thinking about it, there's he 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 basically says, um, we we look at ourselves as if we can be scientifically uh, that we can scientifically plumb the depths of what it is to be the kind of creature that we are. And all it does is make it worse every time, right? He says, you, you look into the, into the rest of Christendom through, throughout history isn't inner violence. I'm sorry. Right? Say that again. You broke up. I don't know why the internet, the, this ain't about the, the devil. Say, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. He, he says, you look through the history of Christendom. You don't find inner city violence. You don't find, um, the we, we, our, ours is the society, the society that has produced of child molesters. So you don't get child molesters in Christendom, right? Throughout history, it's not so. If somebody's like, "Oh yeah, look at all the child molesters in the in the church," it's like that's actually a new phenomenon historically speaking. But it's real. It's a problem. What uh, you don't have uh, the the this the the sort of of obsession with the erotic and C.S. Lewis talks about this as well in mere Christianity. He said, you don't have, um, 
if you went someplace and they had a, a cheeseburger that they kept behind a veil and they slowly moved the cheeseburger uh, and revealed it and all, and you got to see it and all the people started going wild as they watched this cheeseburger and they whistled at it and they said, Oh my gosh, look at that beautiful, amazing cheeseburger. And then they closed it up and nobody ever ate anything. And, uh, and you thought that was somehow normal. You would look at those people and say, they've got a weird view of food. There's something wrong there. They're definitely not satiated. They're not fulfilled in their view of food. There's something that is broken. He said, Go to a strip club. That's what happens with sex, right? Is he said there's something broken about our understanding of sexuality that wow. we we expect it to do something that it obviously is not doing because you don't walk away fulfilled by it. Walker Percy is putting his finger on it and he's saying that's that is that this is not a this is not a one to one to one to one personal problem. This is what happens when an entire society uses misuses science to claim autonomy from God autonomy from the historic institutions and autonomy from any sort of real uh, authority in the world, right? There's no, there's not authority. There is power and the powerless in our understanding of society because real authority would imply real ontological superiority because Christ has made it impossible to claim real ontological superiority. All you can get is autonomous man, autonomous man. When it's set, when autonomous man separates themselves from the historic institutions of the church, it's, they leave themselves open to possession by the the spirit of erotic violence is what is is his claim right that's his claim that we we left ourselves open to the spirit of erotic violence and then invited the possession as a society as a whole right and so i mean it, it this explains every taylor swift song this explains every uh you it, it explains these levels of pop music right you get in popular music you get love songs followed by sex sex songs followed by drugs right you you get it in you get it in jazz then you get it again in rock and roll and then you get it in again in um in the pop music uh, of the 80s then you get it in punk rock then you get it in hip hop right yeah, you've got yeah. this uh this cycle of Love is going to bring ultimate meaning to my life. Oh, that didn't work. Maybe it's actually just about orgasm. Oh, that didn't work. Give me some pot, right? Hit me with heroin, right? That you've got these cycles of expectation that disappointment uh, followed by trying the next thing, followed by disappointment, followed by new expectation, and then eventually you get a bunch of ex drug addicts, um, you know trying Hinduism or Buddhism or, you know, whatever, whatever it is, right there. But it's this, there, there is a weight and an expectation put upon the uh, male female relationship that disappoints because it, it doesn't do that because we try to have uh, that, those relationships in authority free office without offices, without established authorities without any sort of institutional framework. We try to have those relationships and expect them 
to deliver um, ultimate meaning and they don't. And so then we, so I mean, uh, the, the, the oddest conversations that I've always had about, um, you know, people say, Oh, well you say it's you know, gay marriage. You say, well, I don't, I don't actually believe gay marriage is possible. Right. And people say, how can you not believe it's possible? You can go get a license. You can go get a marriage license, right? You, and then you can go say your vows. What's the problem? Say, well, marriage is is actually the establishment of a hierarchy, the establishment of offices, and there's no one to hold the other office. Mm. Right? If you've got two men, there's no one to hold the other office because it's a gendered office, right? It's a it, it's a the it, the you have to have certain body parts to hold the office of wife, to hold the office of husband. That's what it is. That's the kind of institution that it is just like, I mean, and that's the argument that Paul makes for uh male only pastoral ship is it's a, it, that's the kind of, it's an office like father. It's an office like husband. It's a gendered office. It's, it's not a question of, you know, it, and, and that, that's just the, that's just the nature of the institution. And so there's no way to seal the covenant if you don't have both offices filled. So it's just, it's, it's impossibility. That's not the kind of world we live in. So Jason, this is, this is, this is radical because this is when you see the church having the fight or the argument over women pastors, you're like, you're gone. Right, yeah, like, you're done. Right, you're, you're, you, you, by the time, imaginatively speaking, it starts to make sense. You're done. You said, right. okay. it, but by the time your imagination has gotten to the point where you say, "Well, why couldn't she?" Right, you're done. Right, your 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 imagination is shaped so different from reality that you literally that that I. I you are possessed. Mm. <laughs> Your mm. institution is possessed by a different spirit. Because so the, the people, you know, we were talking about this with price, where the ideas have consequences. No, 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 no. Ideas are the consequences. Are, are the consequences right? They're the consequences of covenant faithfulness, dis unfaithfulness. Um, Jason, yeah, okay, so here's here's where you didn't. Okay, go, I, listen again. I don't want to miss what you're saying. I, that's why I'm not hardly speaking. I just want to let you get all this out. But what you didn't get to, you had the erotic violence, but you stopped at drugs. You didn't go into the violence yeah. part of this. How do you get right, so to the violence part of this? Where is that? And, and I guess I need I need I need some definitions of what is erotic what is the eroticism or erotic and then I think I get the violence but the way he's using erotic in the book is not in the traditional sense right yeah yeah right so what so he's talking about the um, so what he means when he talks about erotic is actually different because he says it's something that Christianity brought into the world. Right. He says right? Kierkegaard so said Christianity, that. Yeah. So Kierkegaard um, makes an argument that Christianity brought the erotic spirit into the world, but when it's subjugated to Jesus, 
it's you, uh, um, it's it's a blessing, just like right? all things. Right? So <laughs> yeah, so this is this is see. Um, I mean, if the I there's a couple of places that I think C.S. Lewis is blowing modernism to bits to um, in the Chronicles of Narnia. Right there's the there's the part where he's on Ramandu's island on in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader when he when they say oh in our world stars are flaming balls of burning gas and Ramandu turns and says even in your world that's only what a star is made of not what it is mm. right he is he is. He is making a ontological. He's he he turns his ontological jackhammer on, and he's like, right? He's he's getting at the gnostic assumptions of modernism, and and he knows he's doing it. He's and uh, but the other place is when um, at the end of Prince Caspian, when they're all out uh, dancing, and the god Bacchus shows up. The god Bacchus is the god of wine celebration and and eroticism. And he shows up, and in the ancient world, he is a terror, right? When he shows up, literally, people start tearing each other to pieces, right? That, um, he, uh, but, but he's also necessary. Um, so he, so once a year, you have these bacchanalian festivals uh-huh. um, where everything is subverted, and you and and you get to you know, kind of do whatever you want, and it satisfies the god Bacchus for the year and then you have then you it's go like the back movie to the purge the purge yep that is a Bac- that's a bacchanalian festival and um that really i think is what mardi gras eventually became i don't think that's what it was established as but mardi gras is sort of that bacchanalian festival um now uh, but it but that's a good example of what he's talking about in terms of the release of the spirit of the erotic. And would that be? So what happen- I'm sorry, I gotta stop you. Would that be the Super Bowl too? I think the I think well, it it used to be. I honestly think the Super Bowl has lost its charm, and it's and that's scary, right? The because Super, like, UFC and I, now and lost its yeah. charm. I think lost its charm. I mean that in a technical sense. The Super Bowl was a year charm that we said over the spear of violence that held it at bay for a little bit longer right i mean then and it, but it's lost its ability to do that um you know, because it's not violent enough which is and go ahead yeah it, which is scary right so that that means one of the things that we as a society were using sinful or not sinful but we were using it to hold violence at bay i think doesn't work anymore right and i think this last year proved it um when the uh, uh what one of the numbers were way down and um it it didn't have the same sort of effect that it you it, that it has had in the past right where it brings a major rivalry to the front everybody gets on their side the one side wins and there's a big you know, a violent uproar and then everything settles back sounds, down. Right. It didn't yeah. work. Right. Yeah. So, um, it, it, what you have at the end of the, uh, at the end of the last, uh, of, uh, Prince, Prince Caspian, Caspian yeah. is there's a festival to celebrate the victory. Um, and Bacchus shows up and Lucy goes out and is dancing with Bacchus and then comes back to Aslan and says, Aslan, I, I don't, I don't think Bacchus is safe, right? And 
Aslan says, you're right. Bacchus is not safe unless you're with me. Right. Mm. So that, so that, that, that Bacchanalian spirit of the ancient world was literally violence. It, it caused violence and that, but in a violence abating way, there was a desire for violence that would build up. And then you would have to have some sort of Bacchanalian festival that subverted the authorities for the day. Right, that was an important part of it. The authorities were subverted for the day. Violence, uh, violence was allowed. All of the um, normal limitations on activity were for one day were were taken away, and and then it, and then that went back to normal. And that was how you kept the authorities' structures um, in place. Was once a year you 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 acknowledged um, their oppressive nature, you acted against them, and then it all went back to normal. Well, what happened was the the um, the erotic was removed from those Bacchanalian festivals by uh, cleansed and was then returned to people as a blessing. Right. That's what so, Christianity did, uh, right? It's- that's what Christianity did. Yeah. So it it cleansed um, the that relate the sexual relationship, which was always on the verge of violence in the ancient world. Right. So you have, um, I mean, you you read about the Spartan Spartan, um, just the. I mean, we it's not homosexuality amongst the Spartan soldiers, it's sodomy, right? Because it has nothing to do with, um, I like men. I like, uh, you know, that's what I prefer, right? It has to do with, um, I prove my, my coercive superiority by sodomizing people, right? It's, Mm. it's disgusting, but it was normal in the ancient world. Christianity, um, it takes the it it takes the coercive force and separates it from the erotic, right? It establishes rape laws like no, you actually like if if you rape a bunch of people, you can end up killed, you can end up you exiled, right? You you, you don't uh, <laughs> coercive violence and sexuality are separated, um, and the uh, and violence is then limited by by laws it's limited by uh, uh it's limited to its scope within the authority of particular offices and then it's that's kept not, there yeah. right so violence becomes something that's just done by the police and the military and judges right it's done decently and in order now because it's necessary in order to the the coercion is necessary wow. in certain situations but it becomes limited and it becomes separated from sexuality Right. And sexuality uh, then is protected by uh, by the covenant of marriage where it can flourish. Right. So um, just like, you know, you, you um, just plant a bunch of apple trees out in the wild. You don't get apples. You have to plant them in a garden. Um, you have to protect them. You have to care for them. Right. And then you get apples. Right. Well, sexuality, when it is reigned not not even reined in when it is 
properly planted replant yeah. properly planted into the garden of a protective covenant relationship um and then and then society all looks at it and says we love it there it's beautiful it's wonderful we love it and that and it takes hundreds of years to to make some of these changes in yeah. places but by the by the time you get to um you know the the uh, the center of the Middle Ages, you've got the um, erotic love poetry is all written in terms of marriage, mm. right? And then you get to the Puritans, the Puritans write, uh, so, but now what's, unf- what is the last thing that needs to go is that um, this idea of an unrequited love is somehow more erotic than a, than a, love within covenant so you've got in the right in the center of the middle ages you've got all of these love poets often writing to women that they're not going to be able to marry to marry now sometimes it's because she's the queen right and there's a love for the queen that is expressed in erotic terms but you would never ever even touch the queen right you know she's not yours but you see that she's beautiful right and but now that's uh there's something still bent about that but it's no longer the coercive violence of the ancient world right. joined to the sexuality right okay so well when the the puritans and the protestants come along they take all of that tradition of erotic love poetry and they aim it at their particular wives mm. right and so now you get a flourishing of the erotic spirit um in its proper place that uh that becomes fulfilling in a way that you haven't really seen in in the world, you get an instances here and there, but for the most part, the erotic poetry of the Middle Ages is unfulfilled erotic poetry, knowing that it would be wonderful if, but because I can't, it's an unfulfilled erotic poetry, which is better than coercive violence to eroticism, but it's not yet to what you get post-Reformation amongst both Catholics and Protestants, right? After the Reformation, Catholics and Protestants both start dedicating and writing their all of their love poetry to their spouses. Now, all of a sudden, you've got this new thing. You got a bunch of apple trees planted. <laughs> right. You've got all these apples, and all these people are like, oh my gosh, these apples are good. And it turns out these apples provide the kind of energy that it takes to literally travel the world and establish um, colonies everywhere, right? There's, there's, there's colonies? a reason that. Yeah, colonies, right? Yeah, There's yeah. a reason that the that the introduction of the the healthy erotic spirit within marriage immediately becomes the spread of culture throughout the whole world, right? This these these cultures that learn how to um, to move all of the erotic love into a marriage and celebrate it as a community also become cultures that spread to the ends of the earth. Okay, pause right there. Okay, because I just want to recap real quick because that was a lot. And so I want to make sure I understand this. Christianity ultimately comes into a culture where eroticism and violence is merged together as one. It comes right. because there's it's because and for the most part offices are not in place for these things to properly live. Christian well, the office the offices that are in place are 
in place based upon an ontological a belief in ontological superiority. Thank you. So coercive violence. So, so coercive violence down the chain of being is is justifiable. So and the Christianity comes in and then says, no, 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 no. You're not in that stream of things. <laughs> that chain yeah, of exactly. You're not exactly. in the chain of beings. That's not you. This is this is the world. This is the environment you're in. And guess what? You are a father. This is. Uh, and you have a wife. This is where your eroticism goes. You are a, a governor. You are a police officer. This is where the violence goes. And it starts separating these things in their proper places to the point that we get a whole new world that reminds us again of the garden that's supposed to be generating right for, to the rest of the world. So we see this post-millennial expansion from the proper understanding of the enemy. I just wanted to throw that in there. Okay. <laughs> All right. And so Christianity comes in and brings this beauty to, you know, this is really interesting. Um, Christianity takes something that everybody would look at and say, kill it, throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't do that. And it says, no, 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 no. These things are beautiful. They're great. I love how Pastor Wilson says this. Um, fire is good, but fire needs to be put in the right place. Fly, fire on the couch is a bad thing. Fire <laughs> right, inside right. of the the uh the fire pit is great. Fire inside of it, it heats the house when you put it in the right place, right? But it'll burn yeah. the house down if you put it in the wrong place. Christianity comes in and puts all that fire all in the right places to develop and build a beautiful society throughout the world. Okay, that's where we're at. And that's that's so right. so so now eroticism and violence are 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 in their proper places, right? And but what you what happens though is as um, as the enlightenment as the realization that these that that all of the offices all of the established hierarchies in society as the realization that they. That they do not have an ontolo- they don't have an ontological foundation. Mm. That they're simply and they have an ep- economic foundation. As that realization is separated from uh, a joyful submission to Jesus, right? When you separate it, and um, it becomes the justification for autonomy. Explain you are that. not ontologic. Yeah. You are not ontologically superior to me. I shouldn't have to submit to you. Mm. Right? Mm. Now, now that that statement is not false. You are not ontologically superior to me. I shouldn't have to submit to you. That's not a false statement. Right. Right? Because what Christianity teaches is you are not ontologically superior to me. God has put you in an auto that uh, over me and my gift to you as the one holding that office is my submission, right? My gift, and, and that literally is the way they that subjects talked to their kings and their queens. Um, it, it is is that it was a joy to to give the gift of submission. There, it, there, um, and and even within um, in in the Middle Ages, within uh, the the. Uh, there, there was a way for you to pick up and walk over and join yourself to the Lord next door. If you thought he was a better Lord or a better King, like you, you could move your citizenship um, from one Lord to the next. Uh, it wasn't, 
Now, there were probably generational consequences to that, right? Like if your kids then next king next door that you walked away from the submission to you had you had generations long long memories in the ancient world that's another thing that we don't remember there's this great scene in the fifth chapter of the iliad in which these two men one's a trojan and one's a uh one's a greek uh greek soldier and they come up against each other and then they declare their names to one another and then they realize their grandfathers um had had one that one of the grandfathers had once uh, kept the other grandfather as a guest, and, and they so they they were a table they had so they they had generational table fellowship established, and so they're coming into war and then they realize oh wait no we have our grandfathers are friends never mind so they stop fight and they begin ex- ifs with one another like in the middle of the battlefield <laughs> when they realize their grandfathers uh, are have covenanted together as friends that they're like oh well, we 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 can't fight we're in different armies but our nationality is superseded our ethnicity or be nationality our nationality is superseded by our grandparent our grandfathers covenant and so they stop this battle they exchange gifts it's a beautiful scene i mean it's a like a tearjerker in the midst of it and so that that ancient world had that long memory in terms of loyalty when the loyalty but but when the loyalties go away when are dissolved because all all of our loyalties are are derivative of our ultimate loyalties when we lose ultimate loyalties yeah. All of the sub loyalties go away. Yeah. When the sub loyalties go away, then that statement, you are not ontologically superior to me. There, I, I ought not to be forced to submit to you. When that is true, then, and then the loyalties also dissolve, you get autonomous man. Autonomous man is explained as. Uh, it, just historically speaking, autonomous man is then also explained scientifically, biologically, right? Oh, and so, wow! Right. So, you, it, it, yeah. So what you else have, does he have? Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Right. What else does he have? Yeah. You've got the the my body is the limitations of me, right? That's that's the extension. The limitations of the extension of me, and so you've got biologic a biological explanation of autonomous man, right now. That that version of mankind is what Walker Percy says. This is the one that is liable or is historically speaking, ends up possessed by the spirit of the erotic, by the uh, the uh, becomes an erotic demoniac, right? Possessed by the spirit because and, and the erotic is now suddenly explained in in biological terms explained and there is no covenantal limitations there's no ultimate loyalties that put a limit on it all that is left is can i orgasm Mm. yes or no in this situation right can i now and he says there is no way to not end up recombining the spirit of violence and the spirit of the erotic. Okay, hold on. The oh, difference is okay, go ahead, oh, go finish, ahead. Finish, finish, finish that. It's the good. difference is, whereas in the ancient world, the violent spirit 
had an erotic subset. He said in the modern world, the erotic spirit has a violent subset. That's the only difference. So then why orgasm? Why is orgasming the most highest form of reality, I guess? Would that be the right, the right way to yeah, verbalize yeah. that? It, 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 that that's, it's because it's the one time that uh, in the, for, for the moderns to experience, to experience a uh, complete experience of place. Right. So for oh, him, oh, that right? makes sense. Okay, so, so it's so then it's about that's the only time where they're not gnostic anymore, and so yeah, they exactly. they actually feel real because there's right something. Okay, that makes sense. Because there's a because you end up with a divided self, right? You end up with your divided, and they get more and more and more divided. Right? We become more and more ghosts inhabiting uh in inhabiting an animal, right? More and more and more ghosts riding an animal really is what we end up is that our our spirit is so dislodged from our experience that we become these ghosts, ghostly creatures that ride around the animal body that we are. And he said, but in orgasm, it's it's held together. It's combined again. Now, he says there's other things that do that to some people. Right. There's a mute. Sometimes people experience. Hold on, you just froze. It caused them to feel recombined. Okay, start. Oh. start so you froze. Sorry, so, am, I, am I back? Yeah, you're back. So but, you said some. There's other things that do this for people too. You said there's a, yeah. So, so there there are other things that sometimes will do this for a particular individual, um, where music, you know, in the experience of music, will hold uh-huh. us together for a moment. The midst of a sports. Game, they're hold us together for a moment. He said, yeah. sometimes, you know, you travel to a new place and the new place is so alien to us that we feel recombined for a moment. He said, but what always happens is we end up eroticizing those things. We end up eroticizing those other things because it's actually the spirit of the erotic that has possession of the, a culture of autonomous man. Right. And so he, I mean, it's a, it, it's it's a it's a hard two by four to the forehead when you realize because it, what it means is autonomous man is a myth. We are actually connected into communities still. We are actually connected into institutions still. Right. But we want to. We, we're telling ourselves the story. No, we. I am autonomous, right? But then, why is it that entire groups of autonomous men, autonomous men and women, act the same? <laughs> well, and, right. And so, because we still are a culture. Yeah. We still are a people group. We still are, uh, and we're so we're still held together by something that's just no longer the limiting institutions. Now it's the spirit of the age the, the the main thing that demon possession does is is help you justify the renunciation of reality right yep. like that's that's what demon possession does it helps you renunciate the, the because you're still living in the world you're still existing in the world you can't escape it the i the reality of the world is an inescapable concept you just can't get away from it which is why right uh, orgasming is what it reminds you of that and so that's why you're you're chasing it in one sense but jason the other thing is is that it once you um and we see this so much with pornography once you see that that pornography doesn't fulfill you keep going deeper and deeper and deeper and it goes to a point 
like you were talking about earlier, why do we have so much pedophilia? Why do we have so yeah. much rape in supposedly a Christian culture? Why do we have so much violence? Well, because that is the end ultimately of this eroticism, this form of orgasming has, has a trajectory that it has to go to. So violence has to fulfill that passion to be able to try and right. touch back down to reality again. Right. So, um, you, you end up feeling this, the, that same sort of, that, that same sort of, uh, wholeness in the act of violence. Mm. Right. That you used to be able to get through an erotic act, but you, you keep not being able to now. Right. And so it turns to violence. Okay. Right. Jason. Because it's, because it's, it's a fundamental, logical frustration that you're running into your being is running up against reality. Yeah. Yeah. Over. And, and, and so that, that frustration, he says, eventually the frustration erupts into violence. So, so Jason, uh, I don't even know how to ask this. This is going to be sloppy. So forgive me. Are we living vicariously through the things that we're engaging in media to try and temper down like sports do the reality of where we're going? So you look at the movies that are out there, the horror films that are out there, the action, some of the action stuff, um, kill bill. Okay. You know, Mm -hmm. you, you look at it and you know, Quentin Tarantino, everybody knows what that means. And yet he is selling so many tickets to films. Is it right. because we're living vicariously in order to tamper down the reality of because pornography is rampant right now? Like, you, you, I mean, there isn't anything on the Internet more watched than pornography. Well, that's had its head right now. We have to be going yeah. directly into that trajectory. So I guess I guess the first question. Our movies are the only thing that's stopping more blood spill in the streets than right now at this point. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's, there, there's a handful of things that do it. So Aristotle in his poetics talks about the, um, the, the effect that drama when it's the, the drama has on a community, right? That drama can pull the emotional angst of a community into a moment and then release it. Mm. Right. 50 shades of gray. That, that, I yep. mean, there's perfect. So you, yeah, right. Exactly. And when you see something like Fifty Shades of Grey or the um, the uh, the dragons, what, what was the uh, Game of Thrones? Game you know, of Thrones. Yeah, that's that's not a sign that people are having more and more sex. Right. That's a sign that people are more and more frustrated that the sex is not oh. fulfilling them. Right. And so the so it's getting weirder and weirder and weirder because they're thinking, well, maybe it's because I'm not right. Maybe maybe it's maybe it's because I need to um, go past another boundary because the last time I went past a boundary, it was exciting. And so I need another boundary to cross. I need another boundary to cross. And so and so that, that I mean, that's why you get pedophiles. That's why you get that they're they're looking for. The, the thing that feels fulfilling in the moment is actually the crossing of the boundary, not the sexuality, right? So not the, not the actual erotic act anymore. Um, 
it's it's because and that's why it ends in violence because that's ultimately the 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 final thing that you can do is actually commit violence because you've got to pass another boundary well if all that's left is autonomous man the only boundary left is their is what their body another person's uh, body that's the that's only the boundary. only real that's the only real boundary left and the and if piercing it sexually isn't satisfying then you end up piercing it violently and and, wow. and this is this is not i mean it, it's a theory in one sense but he's actually describing history he's like this is what we've seen happening right we've seen this happening over and over right and so in the in his day and age they were they were in living memory of all of the lynchings that happened down south and he said this is what happened this is why lynchings break out right uh-huh because uh-huh. he um because you've got this this frustration that i that i can because otherwise, why would a lynching be a public event? Why would people bring picnics out? Yeah, take pictures to watch and a lynching? smile. Them. Yeah, yeah. And and some of the lynchings were uh, were racially motivated. Some of sometimes they were ethnically motivated. Um, sometimes it was the it was the guy that molested kids, right? And so they said, "Oh, he's he's crossed the boundary," and then. It becomes a community way of reestablishing the boundary, right? We lynched him. Now, I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's the way that you're supposed to do it. But that he, he's saying it's the way that it happened. And they, so he's trying to say, why does this happen? Well, it's because autonomous man is a myth. Our autonomy is a myth that we tell ourselves. You can't actually establish a real autonomous man except for the the – the serial killer, right? But we've got a rise of serial killer stories, right? For that reason, <laughs> you know, Jason. That, the only thing, I keep thinking about this so much. We talked about this before, which is the way that this this does make sense that this would be the case because the way that God has this goes back to the fire in the fire pit. The way that God mm-hmm. has made man is he's he's placed eternity in him. So then, every time man does something, his expansion for that thing he expands for that thing. And, and and so if he is not placing, if he's autonomous, the thing that God has given, the grace that God has given in rightly placing these things in their sectors with the right authorities, then the fulfillment that God gives fills him each time a little more reminding him of eternity. This goes back to, um, uh, uh, Dante, right? Like this is a little taste of, what it's going to be like with me and rightly placing these things, not being autonomous, but being theonomist. Say that uh, <laughs> twice in one, um, but but twice right, in one. <laughs> but rightly placing these things, you start to get a sense of fulfillment. I mean, and this is. I don't want to go too far in this, but I just want to say, like, this is one of the things people don't tell you about marriage. So when you see all this autonomy running around here, especially in the erotic, people trying to fulfill it and fulfill it, and they can't. You got guys out here having sex with multiple women and never satisfied, never fulfilled. Pornography running rampant, and they're bored with it. It becomes a thing they watch for fun, and then the violence with pornography. You see that running rampant. No one ever tells you that the the marriage bed and your wife fulfills you. She really does. 
in, in, in your expansion for her and the joy of her only grows and it fulfills even more. So nobody talks about the fulfillment of that reality in the blessing of God that as you expand, so does the relationship. So does the right. passion. So does the joy. So does the fulfillment. And so everything, so all these things out, especially same thing with raising kids as they grow, mm-hmm. as you're faithful, then your joys expand, reality expand, all these things that they keep expanding, but they expand and they're fulfilled. And then as you continue to join, they expand and then God fulfills it and it keeps going right. and it will go off into eternity until he is the one, you know, that is. We'll see him as he truly is, right? And we'll expand and he'll fulfill, right? right. Um, and and so it makes yeah. sense yeah. that we go. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, and I was yeah, I was just gonna say this. He he, Walker Percy calls it the vacuousness of autonomous man, right? That and and he and so he takes these these metaphors and he and he says they're metaphors, but they're kind of literal, right? Like autonomous man is actually a vacuum that that is constantly sucking the world into itself to try and fulfill itself. But all it ends up with is an empty world uh-huh. right? because it doesn't actually fulfill. Right. So he'll, you, you'll swallow the entire world into yourself to try and solve, to, to try and fulfill yourself. And all you end up with is a emptied world. I, I call it the vampiric nature of autonomous mm-hmm. man, right? The, autonomous man is a vampire that's constantly sucking the life out of everything around it. And then it says, well, what was wrong? That, there's something wrong with the world because it, it's just now it's just this empty shell of a thing. But it's because you emptied it trying to fulfill yourself with it. And marriage is like that, too. Right. If you come into a marriage and you're by God, you find a fulfilling marriage. If you come into a world trying to fulfill yourself with your marriage, not being fulfilled by God, uh-huh. you will you will suck the life out of your wife, suck the life out of your marriage and end up with a vacuous, empty, nothing um, of a marriage that, and that you does, it doesn't, you know, that you, and you think, well, I, I did the same thing that person did. Right. I got married. I, you know, I had a, I was faithful to my wife. I was all this, but if you're trying to get your meaning from the marriage, Right, you turn it into an idol and use it um you you use it that way you actually empty it of meaning um and i think that's actually what what really happened to marriage we idolized it wasn't it, huh? that we we did, it's not that we disregarded it it's that we idolized and it didn't fulfill but we emptied it of meaning and so then we w- moved on to something else as a society um i think that happened in the wow. victorian era Right. I, I mean, I think it goes all the way back and that and that that's what that's why we got feminism is because we did that to our wives. So you had a bunch of vampiric men that emptied their wives and then well, they we created but, feminism. Jason, we've we've done that with every office that existed like you. Mm-hmm. We've done it. We were just talking about the with Elon Musk and the free speech. Right. We've idolized free speech. And we've. We become autonomous thinking that our constitution could live and survive apart from it's in the chain of being, right? Like, right, right. <laughs> and, and so we've, we've thought that we could live apart from the God that's given us and then we've become autonomous. And so then we, we just trying, we've idolized. I, I've heard Ben Merkel say this before that, um, 
we tend not to want to give God the things that he requests of us. But it turns out that when we offer these things on the altar and give them to God, he gives them back to us better than what we even could have imagined. And, right. you know, I guess the picture, I mean, for me, there's a couple questions here, I think, because we're, we're hitting two hours. Uh, again, I don't know how this keeps happening. How is it? Um, I think is I think we can make the connections. I can make the connections on how we're doing this in Christianity. I think we talk about with marriage. I, anytime we idolize something apart from from God, we end up getting um, neither of them. <laughs> like we end up getting right, a curse, right? right? How um, how do we reestablish authority? Because that's kind of we kind of have to go back and do what the early Christians did, so that we can put these things. Because I don't think the church. So we can put these things in the right place because I think the church too is getting this wrong. It's amazing how many Christians I talk to that have no problem with biblical or have no problem with autonomy, not in the biblical sense. Like they, they want kind of some uh, biblical theonomy, but when it comes to the civil magistrate, it's all autonomy, right? They, they have no, all the offices are neutral and they can choose to do what they want to do because God's kingdom is not of this world. So why are we worried about politics? Why are we worried about the government? Why are we worried about laws? That stuff isn't a part of the world. That's just Gnosticism, right? That's just <laughs> flat out. Right, right. But how do we reestablish authority in such a way that puts this right? And, 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 so, and, and, and I think, you know, yeah, no, I, you know, go ahead. It's so, it's so hard, right? Like, because so um, I, it, it made me think of first Timothy six uh, where Paul's talking to Timothy six seventeen. He says, command those who are rich in this present age, not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Right. So um, we, we have a tendency to say, command those who are rich in this present age, not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God and tell them to give their stuff away. Mm. Right. But he says, actually the first thing that he says to do is don't trust in what you have, but instead acknowledge that it's a good gift. Mm. Right. So, and then he says, let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Right. So we want to jump that middle section because we know that when you don't trust in your riches, that you end up being generous, but we're like, let's get those rich people generous. But he, there's actually a step in there in the middle that says that, that says what's the, what is the, the cleansing act of your riches, right? What does it look like to not trust in them? Enjoy them as a gift. Wow. And oh, then pass them along as well, right? Like so, so I think we have this um, we, in the reestablishment of authorities. What w I think what we need 
to first learn to do is to learn to look around and acknowledge gratefully gifts of God that we have, um, including the offices that he has established and, and acknowledge them as a, as a gift that there's something um, important about acknowledging the authority structures of the world as a gift and enjoying them. So I, I remember I had a, I worked at a, this, this cool little um, blanket factory of a heated blanket factory. Um, this little, I mean, it, it was <clears throat> when I was in seminary and, and uh, we were super poor, right? A couple of kids. We had some health issues with our little littlest kids when they were born. And so we would go through these, this time where we were really poor and my, sh- the, the sole fell off of my work shoe. Um, and uh, so I was wearing my church shoes to work because I had to wait for my next paycheck to get a new pair of shoes. And, and uh, my boss walked by who owns the company and he was like, you're wearing your church shoes. And I was like, yeah, I, I had, you know, the sole fell off my other ones and just wait until payday, get, get a new pair of work shoes. And he's like, Hmm. And he walks along and it was December. Right. And, uh, he, and by the end of the week, he had given every single person that he worked for a brand new pair of work boots as a gift. Right. So it, he didn't, it was, it was amazing. Right. He, so he just, he saw that I didn't have work shoes and he didn't just, you know, slip me a pair or give me a bonus or every single person in the company got a new pair of work boots so that I wouldn't be singled out as the guy that couldn't afford a pair of shoes. Right. And I, and I got home that day and I said, this, this is how you end up with Lords, right? This is how you end up with a, the reestablished was this guy. He, he, he made good money for in his company and he, uh, but, but he had his eye out for how to take care of people. He looked at his employees and said, these are the people that God has given me to take care of right now. And the best way I can take care of them is by giving them a job. So they have the dignity of earning, earning everything that they receive. But when they can't, he makes sure they're taken care of. I thought this, this is how you reestablish joyfully submitting, you know, people that joyfully submit to a Lord. Cause you know, this guy could be trusted, right? He could be given authority and you know, it'd be trusted because he was given the, because the role that he was given in his life, he used it to bless and take care of people, right? It was, it was, um, and, and that comes from looking at what you have and seeing it first as a gift and then being willing to give, right? Being willing to share. And then you reestablish your authority through service or authority. I guess I would say is reestablished in the world through service because uh, um, authority that's reestablished coercively is not a picture of the authority in the Trinity, right? It's, but the, the Jesus's submission to the father is not because he's on inferior. That submission is a gift that he gives to his father. He joyfully submits to his father and the, because he knows, and it says he went to the cross, uh, 
for the joy that was set before him. He knew if the, so he said, not my will, but your will be done to his father. He is joyfully submitting to even the cross because he knows the father wouldn't send me to the cross if it weren't for my own good, which Colossians 14 through 20 tells us it actually absolutely is for his own good, right? That it's because he's going to give him the thrones of all the world. Psalm two promised it. Colossians one tells us that he gave it. And Philippians two says he submitted lower and was made lower than anyone else. That was because the father told him to go there right lower than anyone else. But he was joyfully submitting to the father. Hebrews tells us he, uh, he joyfully went to the he went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. So uh, it has to be something that grows up from a love that establishes the authority of people over it on purpose, establishes the offices of, of the authority over it <clears throat> because somebody is known that they can be trusted with that office. So which is why I think it's going to, it's going to be a generational project to reestablish the institutions of reality that have been <laughs> dissolved by Gnosticism. But I think it's, it's done by those that when God gives us something that we joyfully accept it and thankfully enjoy it as a gift and then are willing to share with it. And then we look for those people that we can joyfully give the gift of submission to, to establish them into an office. Institutions of reality. You know, um, this is going back to, I think the, the reality that's hitting me is you don't get out of this apart from fatherhood. You don't get yep. out of this from marriage, rightly understood, um, living in the world. You don't, you really, I mean, and we obviously we just proved that, um, but you, you really don't get out of this because everything that you just described comes from a man loving his wife and modeling for his children what authority looks like and how to submit to it and the wives loving their husbands and taking care of their, this is all back to Ephesians and, and Titus. Like you really don't, you don't get out of this any other way. Like I, I think like you said, 120 years or something like that. You said, I, I, yeah. I think, I think you are four generations in, Right. I think you're four generations deep before you start seeing if we don't start there, if we don't start joyfully taking on that responsibility as men. I, it's so funny to see men talk about all this masculinity and they always talk about it outside in front of everybody else when it's time to be. And it, I'm not saying that those places don't exist. But it's very seldom that I see men talking about this masculinity and what it's for inside of the four four walls of their home, right? Like that's mm -hmm. where that's where this is cultivated at. That's where this is taught. That's where you. I was on when I was on Whitlock. I was telling them they were talking about Twitter making culture, and I said we need to step back for a second. Twitter doesn't make culture unless the family has abdicated its responsibility to make culture. There is one culture right, maker: right. the family. We teach the morale, the morals of uh, the society. We teach how you engage with your neighbor. We're the ones who are discipling our kids to understand authority and submitting to authority and then what it's like to be an authority, right? That all comes from us. And when you had yeah. that three or four generation breakdown that you talked about last time, 
all the offices are gone. Nobody even knows what to do when they get them. Even good guys like DeSantis, who's trying, don't even know. That's what a good guy does, right? DeSantis is not a bad guy. He's a good guy. He's not setting out and saying, how do I dissolve one more institution of reality, right? Right. (laughs) And yet that's what he's doing. He's like, I got to, I got to, I got to have be, I got to, he just, he has miss, uh, misdiagnosed where the fight is happening. And so he's swinging his sword where there's, where the fight isn't. And, and so he's actually breaking down his own, his own, uh, weapons of war. (laughs) So, but so, and this is where we can learn from guys like master P who said, who, who they say, you know, what is, what is a man? Well, man, somebody that thinks about his grandkids inheritance, right? You're like saying, Master P is a prophet. <laughs> he's a prophet, right? <laughs> like he starting he starts no limit records and he's start he's starting this this uh whole thing and he's he's offered cash up front for it. Yep. And he's fifteen and he million. Says, mm, yeah, fifteen million. If they're offering me fifteen million, then I've got something worthwhile. But if I take the fifteen million, I'm not gonna have that left to pass it on to my kids and to my grandkids. So he so he says you, you got, we got to quit thinking about money and start thinking about generational wealth, but it's not, and that's not just, and he, and he, he talks about this as well. That's not just general. When we talk wealth, we're not talking money. We're talking mindset, knowledge, right. wisdom, you know, all of those education, all those things are wealth. That's that, right. How does the world actually work? That's what we got to think in terms of how do I, how do I, Gather wealth in such a way that it's transferable to the next generation and to the next generation and to the next generation. And and some and some of that's going to be money and a lot of it's not going to be money because you can pass on a lot of money to your kids and grandkids and watch them destroy themselves with it. 